Jason Scorse, and welcome to another episode of Dispatch from the Zombie Apocalypse. I hope everybody is doing great. Uh, today's episode is going to be about the next progressive era in America. Uh, it's kind of a question mark there because we don't really know when that's going to come, but I want to kind of talk about the conditions to make that happen and not necessarily predict, but kind of outline maybe a, a map of how this all could come to pass. But before I get into that, you know, I want to talk just a little bit about the, the, the moment here with this coronavirus epidemic um, that's kind of enveloping much of the world and uh, beginning to show its uh, effects here in the United States. When I uh, started this podcast over three years ago. I did it really in response to the Trump presidency. Uh, you know, before the election, I said, if for any chance Trump wins, because I was not one of those people who thought he couldn't win. I thought he wasn't going to win, but I thought he could win. And uh, I thought I got to do a podcast just to keep things sane, because if America votes for this racist con man, it's really the zombie apocalypse, right? We really have hordes of just kind of brain dead people and just kind of madness and misinformation and uh, kind of, you know, I thought the zombie apocalypse was the perfect metaphor. It was always half joking, but I want to emphasize half joking, right? You know, any country that could vote for Donald Trump uh, for president of the United States to make this dangerous, narcissistic, lunatic you know, have the, you know, be the commander in chief of the most powerful military, etc., is partially insane. And so it really was like anything could happen if Trump um, gets elected. Now, he has skated by in many ways. He inherited the Obama economy that was going pretty well before he came into office. And, you know, we haven't had major wars or terrorist attacks. And so with some extra tax cuts, the economy's been going reasonably well. And so most of the horrible things he's doing, you know, destroying the rule of law, the corruption, the environmental destruction, the cruelty against immigrants, the racism, that's stuff that doesn't affect most people's pocketbooks, right? Let's just be honest about that. In fact, up until, you know, a couple months ago, the stock market was booming and you know unemployment's at record low even if it's not high quality jobs and wages aren't going you know things were in not in horrible shape and that's because you know on the macro he you know he wasn't doing anything that horrible that would affect people's daily lives again unless you're a, you know an immigrant seeking asylum uh etc so this coronavirus though is almost like you couldn't script anything better to expose the danger of having this administration in power, right? We have presidents and administrations in power for crises moments, right? That's why we want competent people who are truthful and honest and, and with integrity 
for these moments because things happen. And and I've been saying this. I've said it in the podcast. I say it to everyone. We've just been on borrowed time here, right? Because there's just no way in America we're going to go year after year after year without a crisis. In fact, three years without one was quite a long time. And uh, so here it is right in the lead up to the election. And then there's this pandemic spreading. Of course, the administration's response has been completely incompetent. And Trump is, you know, lying. And then Mike Pence, this anti-science theocrat in charge of a scientific pandemic response is, you know, absurdity piled atop absurdity. So here we are. And the thing is, you can't lie your way out of this, right? You can't lie your way out of disease. This is like the one thing above all that can really expose the corruption and incompetency. And, uh, and, you know, just as a side note here, you know, One of the biggest villains in this whole Trump era, in many ways, is the traditional media because they've normalized this, right? They should have been sounding alarm bells every day that these people were just not, you know, competent to be prepared for, you know, the the inevitable emergencies and crises that are going to face a world superpower. And they've enabled these monsters. They just talk as if Trump is normal. In fact, if you read about Trump's speeches and press conferences and rallies, they sound normal. They almost sanitize them. And just to, just to do that, I get why you might want to because you can't just be outraged all the time. But to normalize these monsters is just such a dereliction of duty that it's kind of astounding. right? And, and the message here is, is that every day these people are in charge, Trump and his evil cabal, we are in danger. The country is in danger. And now that is being clear because these are the last people you want in charge when we have the seriousness of a pandemic brewing. And, you know, the last points I'll say on this, you know, I didn't want the Iraq war. If we could go back in time and get the Iraq war out of history, even if, you know, it meant Bush left popular and John McCain became president and there was no Obama, I would absolutely do that, right? Because the hundreds of thousands, millions of people who died, the trillions in wasted money, the torture, it's just not worth, you know, a couple, you know, a few years of Obama, right? Um, But... I didn't, you know, I didn't choose the Iraq war. And when it was prosecuted so incompetently, it did expose the Bush administration for their evil and for their insanity. And again, I don't want a coronavirus epidemic. I, if I could snap my fingers and make it go away, I would. But one, you know, bizarre silver lining is that it is exposing Agent Orange and his evil minions. And um, if that's the silver lining we got to take... You know, I will take it. Um, So maybe one day we will be a sane nation and we will not have to experience carnage and destruction to realize the stupidity of our ways and to choose better leaders. But sadly, that just seems to be the type of nation we are these days. Um, And again, not the majority. The majority didn't vote for Bush one. Al Gore won the popular vote. Hillary Clinton beat Trump by three million votes. But You know, it wasn't enough in this undemocratic system. So more on that later. But moving on here, I want to talk about this new progressive era that may be coming. And to to put this in context, we are really living at the tail end of the conservative revolution that started in the 1980s under Reagan, right? Reagan came with this very anti-government creed. You know, government's the problem. Get the government out. You know, bash unions, cut taxes, et cetera, et cetera. 
And we've basically been in that for 40 years. You know, and what has those 40 years been about? Massive corruption, huge record-setting income inequality, stagnant growth rates, right? So they did not deliver, right? This whole thing, we're going to cut taxes and unleash the free market is all bullshit, right? This, the growth rates of the last 40 years were lower than what was in the 50s and 60s. Uh, we've also had pretty much endless war and America falling behind on almost um, all of the major metrics that define an advanced economy. But these last 40 years have been great for the plutocracy. So if you're in the top 1% or the 0.1%, this has been a great time. You've gotten more and more of the, the nation's wealth. You've gotten better toys to play with. And then the rest of us can be your servant class, you know, whether it's private jets or, you know, fancy yachts or fancy restaurants or fancy coastal real estate. And so the whole point has been to serve the plutocracy and it has served them incredibly well. Right. Remember, the, the GOP is a white grievance cult in the service of plutocracy and they have delivered. Boy, have they delivered. So the progressive era of the 30s to 50s is long gone, although we still do benefit from some of the policies, uh, particularly Social Security and then Medicare, which kind of came at the tail end there in the 60s under Lyndon Johnson. And of course, we haven't had 40 years continually of Republican rule. So we've had some modest expansions of the social welfare state, mostly, you know, under Democrats. Uh, we've had, you know, the earned income tax credit under Bill Clinton was increased. We had the children's health insurance program under Clinton. We've, of course, had Obamacare and the expansion of Medicaid. You know, we've had minor things under uh, George Bush the second. He did expand prescription drug coverage, although if you look at the details of that, um, it was mostly just a trillion dollar giveaway to the pharmaceutical companies because they didn't allow bargaining and so they could just charge the government whatever they wanted. So it wasn't really a well-constructed policy, although it did expand benefits to, to senior citizens. So we need a new progressive era. That is clear, right? If America is going to rebuild itself as a true multicultural, egalitarian, equal opportunity country and live up to its ideals, we need the progressive era. The conservative era has been defined by income inequality and destruction and chaos and corruption. And so, you know, the question is, is this going to come and how will it come? But before answering this directly, it's important to realize why America is so far behind other, uh, you know, developed nations, our, our counterparts in the OECD, whether in Europe or South Korea, Japan, Australia, Canada. We just lag behind all key indicators of kind of quality of life, social mobility from these countries. And I know I've beaten this drum a lot on this podcast, but it's just important to emphasize America is not democratic. We have many, many anti-democratic institutions that keep America from living up to its potential. So obviously the Electoral College, the Senate, we have gerrymandering, we have voter suppression, and all of these work to thwart the will of the people. And so getting a new progressive era is going to require more democracy, and I will circle back to that in a, in a little while. But before I get there, I want to discuss Bernie Sanders and his legacy which I think is very key to a future progressive era. And so we'll do that after the break. 
So on to Bernie. I want to be up front here and say that I've had two opportunities to vote for Bernie Sanders in the primaries in 2016 and 2020, and I did not vote for him either time. And this is despite the fact that I agree with about 90% of Bernie Sanders' ideology and his political platform. I deeply respect the man. I think the things he says, particularly about the military-industrial complex, particularly about the plutocracy and the inequality, I think is spot on. And I think in many ways he's been the kind of moral conscience of the nation, not necessarily of the Democratic Party since he isn't a Democrat, and more on that in a moment. Um, But I haven't voted for him because I think two aspects of his candidacies have troubled me and I think have made it clear to me that he is perhaps risky in terms of uh, uh, electoral success and also they're just it really rubs me the wrong way and and let me be clear I did I think Hillary Clinton was deeply flawed and I just voted for Elizabeth Warren who I think made a lot of big strategic errors in her campaign and clearly did not uh, resonate with the people and, and obviously just dropped out. But the, the two, my two critiques of Bernie here and why I did not vote for him are, are this. First, I think he's been very needlessly risky with his messaging. And, 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 and the first part of that is his really wholesale embrace of socialism. Look, I get it that most Americans don't understand what socialism is. He also tries to make the distinction between democratic socialism, which is more the European model than something like Venezuela. But it's just so needless, right? Obviously, it's a charged word. It's going to get the right wing up in arms, and it's going to make a lot of people who don't pay attention to politics very much kind of queasy. And my my whole thinking always has been, you know, why even go there? Why just, just not say, I want to help complete the American project and and give, you know, and, and strengthen the social welfare state and help people live up to their full opportunity and to make sure, you know, we help the most vulnerable and, and give opportunity to our young people. You know, you, you could couch all of this without having to explicitly embrace socialism. And in fact, Elizabeth Warren really did this. She said, you know, I'm a capitalist. I believe in markets, but I believe markets aren't good for everything. And I really want to strengthen you know, the kind of the parts of the economy, the social welfare state, etc. And I thought that was why I voted for her, because in a lot of ways, I think her program was very similar to Bernie's, but I thought her messaging was a lot better. The, the second critique of Bernie is, and I know people who support him a lot might contest this, but he has really kind of had a kind of scorched earth policy to the Democratic Party. And look, the Democratic Party is is very flawed. I, I am not gonna here defend a lot of the corruption in the Democratic Party. But if you're 
If you every four years you switch to the Democratic Party to try to take it over and become their candidate, and then you're just incredibly disparaging about the party and alienate it, almost as if you kind of want to destroy it. I just don't get that. And Bernie has been very good individually about saying, you know, he will support the Democratic candidate, whoever it is. He also did go out and support Hillary Clinton in 2016. I want to be clear about that. But the people on his payroll are really, really alienating. And they're always, anyone who disagrees with them is a corporate show who's on the establishment. And it's this real us and them kind of mentality. And I know Bernie doesn't play that himself, but these are people on his payroll. And so what I kind of get is this kind of good cop, bad cop, where he kind of does the nice, big, lofty stuff. And then all his surrogates do all the stuff, cutting everybody down. I mean, they were going after Elizabeth Warren and calling her a snake. And going after everybody is like, everyone's a corporate sellout. And there's this kind of purity in there. And I really, really don't like that. Look, we are a country of 350 million people. It's much easier to be a social democrat in a country of 10 million like Denmark or Norway or in Canada where it's 20 million and it's largely homogenous, right? We're 350 million. We're Alabama and Alaska and Hawaii and New York City and New Mexico. We need a broad-based coalition. And I just thought... His strategy of just alienating people on these purity tests, it just was very off-putting and I just think unstrategic. Because I think the lesson for Democrats is we have to build a broad-based coalition and we can't alienate people, right? Hillary Clinton's probably her biggest error was, um, you know, the deplorables comment. Even though it was taken out of context, even though in many ways it was true, You just don't want to call the electorate deplorable. You don't want to go after everybody. It has to be an inclusive message, right? You want to go after bad ideas, bad policies, but not go after large swaths of people, especially people you need to vote for you. And what has that led to? It has led to the fact that in 2020, Sanders is underperforming what he did in 2016, right? He's just not getting the votes. He looked like he was the front runner there for a moment after he won Nevada. Um, But then Joe Biden came back strong in South Carolina. And then people started, you know, getting a little nervous that Bernie might, you know, might take it on Super Tuesday. And they coalesced around Joe. And now it looks like Bernie is not going to win. We will we will see. It's not the votes aren't all cast. But I think Joe is an incredibly weak candidate and I'm a little nervous about it. But You know, that's democracy, right? And um, I think the sad part is, is I think Sanders could have put together a winning coalition. I think this could have been his time, but the alienation and the us versus them, you know, especially amongst people who are on his team, you know, I mean, even a Joe Biden, a Pete Buttigieg, you know, these people are 90% on his side compared to the Republicans who are 0% on his side. So, I just I just didn't understand his strategy, and that's why I didn't support him. But let me be clear here. His legacy is huge. I think more than anybody, he has single-handedly moved the Democratic Party to the left significantly on most issues. Right? Even Biden and the so-called moderates and moderates and centrists are much farther to the left and really very progressive. Because of what Bernie Sanders did. Bernie Sanders is hammering the, the Medicare for all, the free college, the climate change. 
he has moved the Democratic Party to the left, and there is no going back, right? The next generation, the up-and-coming liberals and Democrats are much more liberal, and they've really followed Bernie, and they're really enthused by that message, and I don't think the Dems are going to backtrack. I think he has permanently shifted the window to the left, and so I think this has set the stage for a new progressive era because there's really consensus on the left, even if it's not as far left as Bernie. It's, there's a consensus even amongst the most kind of um, moderate and most risk-averse Democrats to really have a pretty progressive agenda. And I think this really bodes well for the future. So uh, after the break, I'm going to come back and talk about how we're going to put this progressive era into motion. But I just want to make one final point here that if Biden is the nominee, his one big weakness is going to be the youth vote because the youth vote is still squarely in Sanders camp. And I've been trying to think about what could he do to really get the youth enthusiastic about him. That's his one core. And I think it's clear. Come out strongly for marijuana legislation at the federal level. I think if he could come out and champion that, you know, that would be something to get the young people psyched. Uh, and I think it would uh, be a great political move, not only good policy, but good strategy. So after the break, I'll talk about what is required for this new progressive era that I think Bernie has really set us up well for. Okay, so we have the, the setup here, right? Better health care, you know, lower cost to free college, strong climate policy, much more liberal immigration policy, daycare, family leave. We have the, the policy platform, obviously voting rights, anti-corruption, anti-monopoly. We really have the template, and I think that Democrats and the Democratic Party broadly agree on and so the question is, how are we going to get this new progressive era? The first thing kind of circling back is we need more democracy, right? The, the American public is much more liberal and progressive than our elections signify because our elections are tilted towards white, old, rural people, uh, particularly in conservative states that really bend the kind of system away from urban young people and their interests. And so how will this be done? This will have to be a combination of state initiatives and federal policy, right? So the Supreme Court said there can't be any federal uh, you know, court judicial rulings that are universal against gerrymandering. So this is, has to be at the state level. So now, particularly, of course, they set up an almost impossible conundrum here where the states that have been gerrymandered by Republicans, now we have to ungerrymander them even though they're already rigged. So it was, an, it was an absurd ruling, and again, showing just how extreme and undemocratic the Supreme Court uh, conservative majority is. 
but it can still be done. We're going to have to go state by state because even a lot of Republicans and independents really hate gerrymandering. And so state by state, we have to create fair redistricting rules. And uh, and so that's something particularly, uh, no matter what's going on at the federal level, people in their own state, if you don't have you know impartial, neutral uh, uh, redistricting laws, um, you can do that at the state level. You can get involved with that. Uh, we also want to do things like ranked choice voting. They they put that in Maine. You know, Maine had the the, the pre-Trump um, LePage there in Maine was just one of these crazy, insane Tea Party people um, that you know came many years before Trump. And yet in Maine, they uh, they did ranked choice voting, and so that's where you get to put your first choice and your second choice. And then you know if the first choice doesn't get a majority, then it goes to second choice. And what this can do is it really favors progressive candidates. So for example, you know, uh, people who really like Bernie could put Bernie as their first choice, but then maybe put Elizabeth Warren as their second. So if Bernie doesn't win in this state, then Elizabeth Warren, you know, might get the, the, the second place vote, right? So it's a way to favor, you can kind of put your idealized candidate as number one, but then put your more kind of uh, your more pragmatic candidate as number two, and that can kind of shift things to a more uh, liberal direction. You don't; it's not an all or nothing since you have a you can get to rank the candidates. So, ranked choice voting is a great initiative, and we see that uh, cropping up in multiple states. Uh, obviously, voting rights, right? Even here in California, right? There were five-hour lines for people to cast primary ballots, and this is in you know the bluest state of them all, practically. So in California, we have to work on that. You know, I can get involved here as a California citizen on improving polling locations, improving the mail-in ballots, right? That's obviously an easy way. If everyone just does mail-in ballots, then we don't have to wait on lines, right? Clearly, there's stuff at the federal level, too. Uh, I think the next time the Democrats have a Senate majority, hopefully in, in, uh, in 2021, obviously to end the filibuster, you know, letting Mitch McConnell... And, you know, his minions veto all progressive legislation is just insane. We can't let them do that. And that is what they will do, guaranteed. If any Democrat wins in November, Mitch McConnell will not let them pass anything. That's just obvious from the start. I think that the final thing that's been mentioned before is we got to give statehood to D.C. and Puerto Rico. It's right, right? D.C. is the capital of our country and those people there don't have representation. Puerto Rico, you know, millions of people who are U.S. citizens, don't have representation. And what will this will do is, since most of those, if not all four of those new senators, would probably vote Democratic, that would start tilting the Senate back towards true democracy, given that it's tilted to you know small conservative states like Wyoming and Idaho. Right. The final point I'll just make here is the long game here. Right. It is much easier to destroy than to create, and that's what Republicans do. They destroy. That's all they want to do. They're here to serve the plutocracy and nothing else. And so democratic progressive rule is going to take decades. It's going to take decades to build the new systems, right? The new systems of voting and anti-gerrymandering and new voting rights. And then it's impossible to do everything at once. Think about the problems we have. Gun control, climate change, education, health care, daycare immigration policy. There is no way any Democratic administration can tackle all those big problems, even within a four-year, even probably within an eight-year reign. So we need patience and fortitude, right? States can be the laboratories and lead the way. 
especially big states like California. And in a lot of ways, we are, right? California and now New York are leading the way in renewable energy policy. So when it becomes time for a big climate bill, we'll have some laboratories that we can look at, right? America is not a revolutionary country. That's just, it was just, it was built that way, right? This is the key. We might have revolutionary instincts, but we don't have revolutionary institutions. And it's gonna, this means it's gonna be really frustrating. This new progressive era is not gonna come overnight. And it means, unfortunately, sadly, that America is gonna perpetuate a lot of needless suffering, right? There's just gonna be a lot of needless waste and suffering until we figure things out. But this doesn't mean it's hopeless, right? We just have to keep our eyes on the prize. And we can obviously start this year and then continue. So after the break, I'll come back with the antidote. Okay, so the antidotes for today are going to be quite brief. And this is as we kind of near a consolidation in the Democratic primary here. We really only have two candidates left. And I think you know this, this podcast is coming out on the next Super Tuesday here, March 10th. I think it's going to be pretty clear soon that we're going to have our, our candidate. And I just want to urge everyone to strongly support the Democratic candidate. I do not like Joe Biden that much. I think he's obviously a decent human being, but I think he's a pretty bad candidate. He wasn't even anywhere near my first choice. In fact, Bernie and Biden, I think, are the two weakest candidates who I didn't think had a chance, and here they are. They're the last two standing. So my prognosticus has not been very good this cycle around. It's just a crazy time. Uh, But I'm going to strongly support Joe if he's the nominee. If it's Bernie, I will strongly support Bernie despite my misgivings, right? We have to unite behind the Dem candidate. Second to that is we need to help the Dems win the Senate and expand their majority in the House. The Senate is going to be particularly crucial. We have some very key races in Maine, Colorado, Arizona, Georgia, North Carolina, perhaps even Montana, Um, if Steve Bullock enters the race. So we have some great opportunities to not only win in November, but have a congressional majority so we can get some stuff done. And there's plenty of ways to help all of the candidates across the country. Even if you're in a blue state, you can help, you know, the Senate races in other states, whether traveling there or writing letters or donating money or making calls, texts, whatever. So those are the things I really want to urge everyone to do because that's the game. It's all about power. All this talk on, you know, on my podcast, all the, the articles, all the pontificating on the cable news, ultimately none of it really matters. This is all about power, pure and simple. That is the game, period. And so let's go get some power so we can begin to usher in the new progressive era. So with that, everybody, I hope you have a great rest of the week. Uh, if you're enjoying the podcast, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, or Stitcher. 
rate it, uh, share it with your family, friends, and colleagues. And with that, uh, take care, everybody. Be well.